0: Uh, So please welcome to the stage, Anthony Grayling.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, I should begin by explaining why a book about war. After all, it seems rather a dreary uh, subject and a dismaying one, but um, several reasons really. One proximate reason is that a few years ago I wrote a book about friendship now, of course, when you write a book about friendship, people think you've gone over to the, you know, the other side and like patient, strong, and so on. But actually, as you know, because you were all reading Aristotle in the bath last night, so you will remember that in his *Nicomachean Ethics*, he devoted two whole chapters to the question of friendship, which he regarded as the most achieved of all human relationships and valued it tremendously highly. And as a result, a great tradition of debate began all the way through the history of philosophy about our human relationships and about the fact that friendship is a tremendously important bond between people. You can become friends with your children when they grow up or you can become friends with your parents when you grow up or friends with your colleagues, friends with strangers and so on. It makes the world very much a better place. And I was asked by the publishers, Yale University Press, to contribute a sort of... Uh, opposite um, book, something uh, different, perhaps even the contrary to friendship. And I bethought myself, well, the opposite of friendship is enmity, and organized enmity is war. And as someone with an interest in philosophy and in ethics, um, it had been on my mind for quite some time uh, to think a bit more generally about the phenomenon of war in our human experience. Some years ago, I, I wrote a book about the allied bombing campaigns in the second world war and this was predicated on the fact that when i was a small boy my great ambition was to be a spitfire pilot in the battle of britain which would have involved time travel and to go back in time better eyesight my mum wouldn't have let me go at the age of seven to be a spitfire pilot anyway and so on so there were a lot of difficulties but anyway that was my big ambition Uh, and i read everything that i could about the air war and as one reads of course the uh, different aspects of the air war come into focus, and I noticed in the literature about the bombing campaigns over Germany and Japan that there was an equivocation. And people talked about the fact that the indiscriminate bombing of civilian populations raised moral doubts in the minds of many, and it seemed to me a particularly poignant matter this because the first duty of the Allied powers was to beat the Nazis and to beat. Uh, the uh, Japanese uh, militarist regime that then existed. But the question arises, even if that is your first duty, does it license every kind of behavior? Does the end really justify all the means? Does it, for example, justify indiscriminate attacks, bombing whole cities by night, attacking civilian populations? Because, of course, it was very difficult to do precision bombing of military and industrial targets only. And so I wrote a book about it and came to the conclusion that um, those people who, during the Second World War, in this country, people like Corder Catchpool and Vera Brittain and others who had set up the Committee Against Night Bombing and argued that we shouldn't be using that as a military tactic, that they were right. Bishop Bell of Chichester. um, So Bishop Bell of Chichester in the House of Lords in 1943 said, we're fighting barbarians, why are we behaving like them? So the question of the morality of war and the morality of behavior in war is a very pressing matter. And that's one of the things that I consider in this book. But that uh, um, writing that book gave me this more general interest in the question of why does war happen? Why is war apparently such a pervasive and common feature of our human experience and our human history? And when one begins to, to look at it, when one asks oneself the question, what is the cause of war and are there any justifications for war and are there any kinds of constraints that ought to be observed by people when they're fighting a war and what might the future of war be like given the very rapid technological changes that we are facing at the moment you see that a great tapestry of uh, of questions arises about war so it's a it's a very complex and a a very full subject and I try to address many of these topics in the book but just to talk about it a bit I'm going to try and pick out three themes from it. One is that question about the cause of war. Why does war happen? The second is to ask about the question of justification for war and in the course of war, so-called just war theory which is a part of the great debate in ethics. And finally just to say a few things about the future of war because war and the way that war is conducted is in the process of change in ways that uh, could be very, very alarming, uh, even against the background of the fact that war is alarming enough. So first then, the question about the cause of war. The first thing that you will notice is that that question itself needs to be questioned. Is there one cause of all war? Or are there just individual causes of particular wars? Does each war that's ever happened have its own set of circumstances that explain why it happened? Or is there something of a more general kind that makes we human beings, or perhaps the masculine part of humanity, uh, have a propensity to organize and uh, go to combat other organized groups of human beings? So the two things that will help us to understand this are to look at uh, look at history and to look at our near neighbor's in, in evolution, in primate evolution. And both of those sources, when we look at our other uh, creatures, chimpanzees for example, and when we look at the history of war in human society, we begin to notice something rather optimistic. As follows, it looks as though war is a phenomenon in human history for about eight to 10,000 years. Of course, fighting happened before that time, but not war. This is because the concept of war is a rather particular concept. Now, the idea was introduced by a, a paleoanthropologist called H.H. H. Turney High about what he called the military horizon, about the fact that certain kinds of, uh, of fighting below this horizon don't really count as war because they are insufficiently organized and sustained. They're a bit like football hooligans, having a go at one another or people losing their tempers with one another in a pub. But above the military horizon, where you get war as such, what you see is organization. You see people making plans, manufacturing weapons and uh, armor or uniforms, um, providing logistics, uh, making a very detailed provision for moving military forces to a place where they can combat other military forces. In other words, a great deal of organized, centralized planning. And war, to be war, has to evince that characteristic, the characteristic of organization. The spontaneous outbreak of of, uh, fighting between football fans or, or between people who lose their tempers in a pub is by its very nature tends not to be organized Well, we all know that you know hope there are not too many Millwall fans here tonight but they used to plan to have a go at at fans of of other football teams so there was a sort of minimal organization there but not to the point of uh, um, the kind of planning that goes into the making of war and this is a very important fact because people think of war as aggression and violence and yes indeed There is aggression and there is violence at the very tip of the spear of combat. But when generals are sitting around a table planning, and when engineers are uh, designing and building fighter jets, and when people in factories are making munitions, they aren't aggressive. They aren't covered in a red mist of rage. In fact, they'd better not be. They'd better be cool because they're planning and organizing and working in a sustained way. That a great deal, therefore, of what happens in the making of war, of readying for war, of moving to war, and of actually unleashing combat, tends not to be a matter of temper and aggression, but tends to be something rather calculating. And Only at the very, very sharp end of war, in combat, um, would it sometimes be necessary for the combatants themselves to be angry or to be really charged up or, or to be full of Aggression against the enemy. But if you think about it, think of a sniper on a roof somewhere uh, taking pot shots at uh, enemy forces. It would be much better if he wasn't uh, in a state of, of uh, tremendous anger or aggression. But that he too is cool and in control of his emotions. Same for the officer in command of a platoon. Indeed, war would seem to be something better done and more successfully done if it's calculated and calm. So, this suggests that the ideas of aggression and violence and anger and hatred and rage are not actually part of, uh, or a very large part of the organizing and making of war. And that therefore war is something much, much more conscious and deliberate than you would see in a pub brawl or a spat between football hooligans. So, that's one thought that we should just put in place. And when we look back across uh, recorded history, we find that the earliest evidence of, of war as such, not just fighting between uh, groups or individuals, but organized war, is, as I say, only about eight or 10,000 years ago. Archaeologists uh, looking at the um, some of the very early remains of Jericho. Remember, Jericho had rather a, an unfortunate encounter with Joshua at a certain point of the Old Testament. Well, Jericho had walls two meters high and uh, a meter thick, It had a tower on a mound within the city walls about two metres high, this dating back to about 8,000 BC. Now, you would think that very strong walls, strong high walls, betoken anxiety about attack by an enemy, and very probably is evidence of that. Although some archaeologists argue that they weren't for defensive purposes, but uh, as a defence against flood. In those Palmy days, um, the River Jordan, which flows not very far from the site of Jericho, uh, was not what it is today. It's a muddy trickle today, but it was a, a big river in those days, so perhaps it did flood from time to time, which made it, therefore, as about sensible as quite a lot of um, British town planners putting a city on a floodplain. But if that's what they did, then they did need def- flood defences, and that's what those wars would have been. My own guess is that they were probably... Defensive walls against uh, attack by enemies. Go back a bit earlier, and it begins to look from the evidence provided by cave paintings that the very earliest depictions of people firing arrows at one another is about 12,000 years ago. Now that would that might be the beginnings of organisation or the beginnings of, of um, war as we understand it. Could also, however, just be the uh, archaic version of a uh, of, of football hooligans having a go at one another, although the fact that the, the uh, attacks, the mutual uh, um, archery attacks, were recorded on a cave probably meant that they were significant enough to be captured in early art. But if you go back before then, cave paintings go back 30,000, 40,000 years ago, none of them have depictions of people fighting one another. Their depictions are of animals or of hunting scenes and the like. Of course, all the instruments that were used for hunting, knives, spears, bows and arrows, could be used for war as well. And when one looks at um, contemporary uh, um, Neolithic societies or Stone Age societies that still exist in the world today, in Papua New Guinea or in the Amazon jungles, for example, one notices that from time to time, neighboring tribes do fall out with one another. And so they arrange to meet at a certain place and they meet there, the men uh, meet there, they keep their distance from one another, and they shout uh, at one another, insults, they hurl imprecations rather than missiles at one another. And and when missiles are thrown, it's thought to be a very great uh, talent to be able to be uh, good at dodging them, to be nimble. If anybody gets hurt, if blood is drawn, the battle ends and they all go home to tea. In fact, they all go home to tea anyway, even if anybody isn't hurt by, by, by evening time. And this is very interesting because, and by the way, you can see some of this on YouTube. You can you can look it up. In this footage from the back 50s and 60s of, of uh, some uh, two uh, uh, groups of men from different tribes in Papua New Guinea dancing about and and um, you know making rude gestures to one another and then going home afterwards. And that's their their form of war. Now it does it does happen um, in the both in in, uh, Papua and in the Amazon jungle, that sometimes these conflicts do get out of hand and there are fatalities. And sometimes some groups uh, will gang up on other groups and ambush them and cause serious harm. But generally speaking, injury is very, very bad news for a tribe because the um, contribution made by each individual member of the tribe is probably crucial to the survival of the tribe. And so to have injured people who've got to be looked after or carried around... Uh, and you can't make a, a contribution to the economy of the, of the tribe is bad news for them. And in a society with no antibiotics and the rest, injury can be fatal. So even just a, an arrow in your ankle or something like that could be very bad news. And so they tend to try to avoid injury if they can, except in these cases where things escalate and get out of hand. But even there, it's not war, it's fighting. It happens in the space of a day or a couple of days, and that's it. So one piece of evidence that war is not natural to human beings is that it is a recent phenomenon in human history. It seems to begin to happen, really to happen, from about the time that human communities began to settle with agriculture. It seems to be a phenomenon that is characteristic of settled societies and the growth of of, uh, urban societies. So that's point number one, and it's quite interesting. Let's look at our neighbours among the primates. Well, you will know that uh, uh, there are two kinds of chimpanzee. The big chimpanzees are called pan-troglodytes, and the smaller chimpanzees are called pan-paniscus, and these latter um, chimpanzees are sometimes known as bonobos. Now, the big chimpanzees, pan-troglodytes, groups of male chimps do get together, and they go off and they raid other uh, troops of chimps. They fight against them, and there can be fatalities, and if they can capture and kill Uh, another chimpanzee from that other group they will eat it so um, violence uh, attack organized attack and cannibalism uh, happen not not a very great deal but with some uh, degree of frequency among pan troglodytes among the other kind of chimpanzees pan paniscus the bonobos well they have a very very different idea about how um, interpersonal relationships should be conducted as you may know Uh, they have a much more amorous and friendly way of uh, of, um, uh, dealing with others of their kind. And I was delighted to read about two weeks ago that actually we're genetically closer to them than we are to the pan troglodytes. So that's the good news. So it's very difficult to infer anything from animal nature about us. We know that in the rutting season, uh, male uh, deer, buck, uh, and walruses and uh, buffalo and so on will fight one another for control of the harem of the, of the females. And what tends to happen is in those uh, contests, you can occasionally get serious injury or even fatalities, very, very occasionally. Walrus bulls, for example, can sometimes uh, cause the most horrendous injuries to one another. But in most cases, there isn't great injury. In most cases, what tends to happen when, for example, um, buck uh, clash antlers... Or horns the um, the stronger of the two will push the weaker of the two back and then the the one who is defeated has a dramatic drop in testosterone levels and the one who wins has a tremendous surge of testosterone which of course is handy because he has to look after a whole uh, harem of females and this is about genetic fitness this is about uh, who will mate and um, it's a, a contest to decide something which is of evolutionary advantage to the group this isn't organized war Um, it's it's not even in a way fighting it's more contest than fighting so there is very little evidence from the rest of the animal kingdom that war certainly or even for that matter fighting is something which is uh, 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 read into the mammalian genes and which would invocable to explain why it is that we produce uh, jet fighters and tanks and submarines and so on and go to war with one another. For that, we must look elsewhere. There is a final piece of evidence that suggests that war is not natural to us, and that is that uh, when people experience war, people who have actually been in combat tend to be tremendously traumatized by the experience. If war was something which was... um, came naturally to us, or or fighting was something which was natural to us, we wouldn't be as upset as we are by the experience of seeing people die, people screaming in agony, people mutilated, all the horror, the terror of uh, the experience of being in imminent danger, uh, the death, the destruction around us. That wouldn't traumatize us in the way that it does if it was something that we were genetically prone to want to do. It's very, very interesting this that, um, of course, uh, up until the 19th century, wars tended to be seasonal. So armies tended to uh, um, amass and, and go to fight other armies in the summer when the ground was relatively dry and the armies could move. And then they would either disband or go into winter quarters for the rest of the winter. The, um, the, the combat in question would sometimes, and certainly during the 18th century or not, not before, become as formulaic as some of those tribal conflicts that I talked about earlier, with uh, armies maneuvering in long lines and drilling and the like. But the the evidence about the, the traumatic effects of war really started to come home in the First World War. Because you may remember that an army doctor by the name of Mayer published an article in the Lancet in 1916, in which he described the phenomenon that he had observed on the battlefront, the phenomenon of shell shock. And to begin with, he and other doctors thought that the proximity to explosion, to the concussive effect of an artillery going off near you, would so rattle the brain that it would cause these symptoms of shell shock. The symptoms included uncontrollable shaking, screaming, paralysis, people going psychologically blind even though there was no physical injury to their heads, just inability to speak, aphasia, all sorts of psychological symptoms of that kind. But then he noticed that it wasn't just people who'd been near an explosion who had these effects, but everybody who'd been on the front line, or anybody. There were a lot of troops being uh, brought back from the front line in this state of shock. So he withdrew the label shell shock, although it stuck, and in fact it has stuck pretty well until recent times. Because many of the the traumatized uh, troops uh, were physically fit, And because there was a premium on getting physically fit men back into the front line, the army doctors developed what was known as forward psychiatry or frontline psychiatry, where they would try to pacify or calm somebody down and get them back into the front line as quickly as possible. Pretty well on the same principle as getting back on the horse as soon as you've fallen off. They found that when people got um, further away from the front line, perhaps nearly as far back as where the generals were, they tended to be... uh, more or less incapable of, of being put back into action because they would get the trauma would get more and more serious and they wouldn't be able to do it. After the First World War, um, the in the usual way of these things to save money, the British government got rid of the uh, army's psychiatric service, and it was only reintroduced in the third year of the Second World War, uh, in in uh, 1942. And this was because the longest uh, ground war campaign for the British. in in the 1940s, the Second World War, was of course the Western Desert and Italy. And there many of the same phenomena were noticed. People uh, trembling, screaming, going rigid, not being able to speak, um, being very, very uh, upset indeed by their experiences in battle. In fact, between Uh, 30 and 40% of all troops invalided out of the British Armed Forces during the Second World War were invalided out for for psychiatric reasons, psychological reasons. The techniques that were used uh, in the Western Desert by the psychiatric service in Cairo was to slap um, soldiers or pour cold water over them or to humiliate them before their comrades. Um, This was meant to be a kind of aversion therapy to get them to want to go back to the front line instead of Staying to be, uh, you know, suffered this kind of treatment on the part of the psychiatrists. And if they were hopeless cases, if they couldn't stop shaking, if they couldn't speak, if they couldn't walk, uh, they were just invalided out. Now, the cumulative experience of the First and Second World Wars taught the American military that they had to prepare their troops better for combat. It had been noticed in the First World War after the Kitchener armies. You remember Lord Kitchener? Your country needs you. Well, he was looking for volunteers. But when it became, because of the slaughter on the Western Front, necessary uh, to do more than get volunteers, they started conscription. And they conscripted people into the armies and they discovered that less than 20% of conscripts were any good on the battlefront, would point their rifles in the direction of the enemy and pull the trigger. Most of them just didn't do anything or shot in the air or shot themselves in some cases uh, or were just too frightened to, to, to be effective at all. Uh, and the, the people who were effective were people who had the same kind of psychological profile as recidivists, that is, people who keep going back to prison, keep on um, committing uh, uh, crimes and keep on being arrested and going back to prison. And their profile is that they have very little remorse a very little memory of how bad it was when they had an earlier experience. And so they weren't put off by their experience of prison. Uh, and so they would commit another crime and not mind being being caught. Eventually, of course, they would become institutionalized and want to be in prison. But in the case of the, um, of the effective troops in, among conscripts, they had this, this profile that they didn't think afterwards about what it was they had seen or experienced or about killing somebody. So the American uh, army um, decided to try to train its troops to be prepared for combat. They told them in advance about what they might see or experience, what the horrors might be, how they would deal with the death or wounding of comrades or of themselves. And they sent to Vietnam um, uh, uh, troops who some uh, people say were probably the best prepared for combat of any army in history. And the reason why Vietnam vets are a particular kind of problem, as you may have heard, that Vietnam vets, unlike any other vets, have been the, the ones who have had the most difficulty in reintegrating in society, was not because of their experience in the jungles in Vietnam and Cambodia, but because when they came back from their combat experience, they were not welcomed or honoured by their home community. They didn't get the purification, the rites, the shriving, that uh, uh, military personnel get when they come home and they're honoured as heroes and they've served their country and they're respected and so on because the home community didn't like the Vietnam War and there were huge protests against it and and, and the Vietnam War was regarded as a war that America shouldn't be involved in. And so when people who had horrible experiences in Vietnam got back to America and found that they were you know, part of the enemy, and the people didn't like what they'd been doing, they didn't have that opportunity to heal, to get rid of the experiences that they had. And this is one reason why Vietnam vets are a very, very unusual bunch. Again, it's the United States military which really provided the materials for thinking about the effect of war on human beings, because nowadays in Afghanistan and in the Iraq conflict, um, both Gulf Wars, body armor, And frontline medical treatment and the rapidity of evacuation of wounded men from the frontline and the excellence of trauma surgery provided in the military means that many, many, many more soldiers survive being wounded in battle now than ever before. They survive their physical injuries, but not their psychological injuries. And as a result, in America today, among uh, veterans of the Gulf conflicts and of Afghanistan, there is an absolute tsunami of post-traumatic stress disorder. These are people who, m- many of them, would have died on the battlefield had it been 50 years ago or 100 years ago. But they were saved. Maybe they'd lost limbs and, and so on. And there are cases of, of uh, survivors in Afghanistan who lost all four limbs, for example. But they are incredibly traumatized, and these these trauma uh, appear. Even in people who were multiply decorated, who seemed fine, who were really first-rate soldiers, who had gone back uh, for several tours of duty in places of conflict, and then years later, these awful symptoms, the post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms, would begin to appear. And so now uh, we have accumulating evidence of the fact that witnessing violent death, scenes of mutilation, hearing the screams of the, uh, of, the of the wounded, um, seeing the, uh, the the kind of situation that uh, you would meet with on the battlefront, and if ever any of you have seen, um, I forget the name of that movie now. Is it called Hawks Hawks Ridge? What is it? The one about uh, what's it called? No, no, not Black Hawk Down. It's the the one about the pacifist soldier who. Hacksaw Ridge, that's the one. Yes, there's some sort of Mel Gibsonian uh, um, graphic images of blood and guts and blown off legs and hands and heads and so on, but uh, just enough of a little a slightly theatrical um, illustration of what you might see uh, on the battlefield, which would, of course, be incredibly traumatising. So that's my, my third thing. History, war is a recent phenomenon. Uh, look at our, our, uh, our animal cousins and among the rest of the mammalian kind. Uh, we, we see certain kinds of fighting, but not um, anything that is uh, an analogue of war, and the fact that we are not tuned to this kind of experience. Put against that the following fact, that we are, like ants and dogs, we are a social species. We are essentially social. We live together in communities. We need one another. We need friends. We need to give love and to receive it. We need to be part of of a group working together. That goes directly contrary to the idea that there is something instinctive uh, in us about going to war. We do, however, gang up uh, on others. We do other others, that is, make others you know, different from us with a big capital O so that we can demonize them and, and um, disvalue them and even indeed attack them and bomb them at, uh, at times. That aspect of us, that aspect of the way that we can use our sociality to gang up on uh, others' sociality, needs an explanation. Where might it come from? Well, if you put together the things that I've just been saying, it would seem to be the case that if war, as a phenomenon in human history, follows on the uh, settlement of urban Um, Societies of people settling down and staying in the same place, controlling that terrain and the resources associated with it, the water supply, the grasslands or whatever it might be, the the, the fertile fields, that it is the way we arrange our political structures, the way we we organise relations between groups that is productive of conflict, not in our human nature, but in our political arrangements. I want you to notice that if that is right, and the arguments for this are in the book, and the evidence and so on is in the book. If, If that is right, then it is a very, very hopeful thing. Because if war were in our genes, then we are doomed to war, and war would eventually doom us. But if it's in the way we organize ourselves, politically and socially, and in our international relations, then there is hope. Because then we could maybe one day end war, by ending the way that we organize ourselves in international relations such that we are in conflict with one another. Notice these two very, very telling facts. Firstly, the international order of all the different nation states or states that there are in the world is an anarchy. There is no overarching world government or world court or something to which uh, conflicts, when they've got out of hand or when diplomacy has uh, reached its limits, or where there is no other way of of, um, resolving some kind of very difficult dispute, there is no way of resolving this thing other than uh, by means of conflict, by using things like sanctions or blockades or even in the extreme actual fighting. The international order is an anarchy. The other thing is that uh, for um, most of modern history, certainly from the 18th century Enlightenment, It has been argued again and again and again by people that if different states were to enter into relationships with one another, predicated not on treaties made by kings or governments, but relationships of trade and exchange, of people moving freely between the countries, of educational exchange, but of commercial bonds, especially where um, in the different countries the uh, contracts, the obligations, the relationships with Um, commercial, industrial, trading partners in other countries were very, very strong, that in those circumstances, war wouldn't happen. Tom Paine argued this in the late 18th century. Um, uh, Cobden, Richard Cobden, argued it in the middle of the 19th century. And there is a historical proof of this. It's called the EU. Since 1945, there hasn't been a war in Europe between all the countries that have entered into very intimate trading relationships with one another. An argument for another time. Well, so so all all these thoughts uh, suggest to us this very, very hopeful outcome, that war isn't necessary. War isn't inevitable. That with the right kind of spirit, um, we could uh, overcome it. As it is, most of the nations of the world divert huge resources, billions, hundreds of billions of pounds and dollars into War, training soldiers, making war equipment, developing new war technologies. And my word, um, the amount of uh, R&D money that's going into new technologies is frightening. Let me just give you one little indication of what is already happening in the way of the technology of war, which will probably change the face of war in the coming decades. You all know about uh, uh, drones, you know the drones, you've all seen the Eye in the Sky movie, maybe. You know that, uh, that now the United States Air Force over 30% of the uh, aircraft in the United States Air Force are drones. And they are used for surveillance, for um, combat uh, activity, for finding uh, and locating an enemy, targeting them. And, of course, drones have a number of advantages. Big advantage for the home team is in that there is no human being in it. So if it's shot down, um, it doesn't cause the death of anybody on the home team. It has a minor advantage that it's more precise than just dropping bombs by night on a whole city. So it can be more precise, and it can sometimes limit collateral damage. But of course, in the circumstances of of, um, war, collateral damage always happens, and collateral damage is just a horrible fig leaf word for killing innocent people. So that that is a problem, but it can be more um, precise. People don't like the idea of these drones because they seem sort of Rather horribly faceless and not having a human being in them. And the fact that they're up there very, very high, and they can stay aloft for a very, very long period, extremely high-definition cameras, and they can pick out people moving on the ground, they can target them, and the people on the ground don't even know that they're about to die because they don't hear the drone and they don't hear the missile on its way to them. So it seems particularly horrible. It seems horrible that these drones in Afghanistan are flown by people in Nevada, at Air Force bases in Nevada and Texas, the sort of people who are quite good at Xbox and then they can operate these uh, um, aircraft from a very very long way away. So all that seems awful. Now drones are called human in the loop weapon systems because they are operated by human beings and controlled by human beings and human beings pull the trigger to fire the missiles that they carry. But there are already systems which are ...are not controlled by human beings, but which are programmed to behave automatically. These are known as human-on-the-loop systems. Not human-in-the-loop, but human-on-the-loop... ...because human beings can monitor them and can override them sometimes. Uh, Such systems, for example, as the Phalanx Missile uh, Defense System, which the United States Navy uses... United States Navy ships are equipped with phalanx defense missiles, which automatically recognize and track incoming missiles or attacking aircraft and will fire and shoot them down before they get anywhere near the ship. And this is done completely automatically with no no human being being involved in the decision. But a human being can override them or switch them off uh, if um, he or she wants to. But also in development, and maybe already uh, in trials, are the so-called human out-of-the-loop system. These systems are known as LAWS, L-A-W-S, by the usual awful, chilling sort of acronym that people come up with. And they and LAWS, L-A-W-S, stands for Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems. These are weapon systems in the air, on land, and under the sea, which are completely autonomous. They have no human being monitoring their activity or overriding them. They are programmed to identify... Uh, enemy um, ships or planes or people and to attack them. Now, in the use of these um, uh, uh, systems, even including the human in the loop systems, the um, a military phraseology that's used is find, fix, and finish. So, you use these systems to find your target, to fix on it, and to finish the target, kill it, bomb it, or something. And what these laws do is they are programmed to find, fix, and finish quite independently of whether or not any military personnel are watching them. The great problem with the human out-of-the-loop systems is that the AI on them, the artificial intelligence on them, has to be extremely good. And the question is, is it good enough yet for these systems? Because these systems have to be able to identify the difference between somebody surrendering and somebody about to throw a hand grenade. It also—I mean—we human beings are, are, are better, much, much better than any AI system known to date. Anyway, at reading the intentions of another human being. So, if somebody is stumbling towards you because they're wounded or terrified or trying to surrender or they're a civilian, they're not coming to attack the system. Or if they're coming towards you to try to attack the system, how do you tell the difference between the behaviour? How do you read the body language, uh, in in order to decide what's happening? Can an artificial intelligence system on a completely automatic weapon system trundling along the ground and seeing you read what your intentions are? If you see one of these things and you turn and run for your life, does the machine think that you're an enemy combatant seeking shelter and take you out? Having found you and fixed on you, is it going to finish you? So the question arises about the ethics of uh, these weapon systems, and the great problem with them is this. Almost anything that human beings can do, they do do. You know, when the time comes when you can genetically modify your fertilized egg so that it can be seven feet tall, blonde, with IQ of 389, and so on and so on, people with enough money will do it. You know, the uh, Huxley picture of Brave New World with two different species of human beings? That's a possibility. Because if you can do the genetic modification, there will be people who will pay for it to be done. If you get weapons systems that can be completely autonomous and which won't involve any of your personnel anywhere near them, and which you can set off into the enemy territory to to find the enemy um, and to dispose of them, it will be done. And it's almost certainly the case that it's being done already. Human Rights Watch and other human rights organizations have been begging governments and uh, military engineering firms, BAE and so on, not to engage in this kind of work or developing these sorts of weapon systems. But you can see the logic that uh, any government would follow. It would say, but the other guy might be doing it, so we better do it too. And this is where escalation comes from. So... um, uh, what this suggests about the future of war is that it won't be soldiers fighting soldiers or fighter, air, uh, fighter pilots fight, fighting fighter pilots in the air. Instead, it would be unmanned weapon systems attacking not just other unmanned weapon systems, but civilians. Civilians have come onto the front line of wars since the First World War. Of course, civilians have been badly affected by war uh, throughout history. Um, when armies have gone through their terrain. But from the First World War onwards, of course, whole populations have been put at threat by the development of uh, um, weapons of mass destruction, as they're sometimes called, bombing and nuclear bombs, for example, and now these new weapons systems. So it's civilians who are on the front line. Now I want to say something about the question of justification for war. Um, Christian uh, moral theologians uh, congratulate themselves on the fact that just war theory, as it's called, now just war theory addresses the question of the justification for going to war, just behavior in war, and the just settlement after the war is over. This is known respectively as the jus ad bellum, the jus in bello, and the jus post bellum. So going to war, in war, and after war. And the person to whom um, praise is given for the development of this theory is St. Augustine in the fourth century of the Common Era, although the writings of St. Augustine on this question were picked up um, some centuries later by St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, and they're given a very formal statement. So um, the idea of just war theory is annexed to the idea of uh, Christian attitudes, which I have to say Um, gave me uh, a certain amount of relish, as you might imagine, uh, in discussing this fact, because of course the reason why Augustine came up with just war theory was as follows. If you read the texts of the Christian religion, it tells you, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, blessed are the peacemakers, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. In other words, it's a pacifist religion. And Martin Luther, who's uh, vandalizing of the church door of Wittenberg we celebrate this year, 2017, 1517, you may remember. He said, ours is a pacifist religion, so if the Ottomans attack us in the Holy Roman Empire, we must just roll over and accept it. There'll be God's will. We mustn't fight back because we're told in our scriptures that fighting is uh, wrong. But you see, in the year 313 AD, or CE, as we now say, the Emperor Constantine, whose mum had become a Christian, you know, what mums are like, was he? He made he he decriminalised the Christian religion, and made it fashionable, and so all the you know sort of upper class Romans and the rich people and what have you really began to take an interest in Christianity and want to be Christians too, like Constantine, the emperor's mother, and eventually he himself converted, as you know. So by 380 uh, uh, AD, or of the Common Era, um. By that time, when the emperor Theodosius I made Christianity the official state religion of the Roman Empire by means of the Edict of Thessalonica, it had already been very widely accepted in uh, upper reaches of Roman society. But there was a bit of a problem, and the problem was that business about the eye of the needle, about rich people. You know? And it was the rich people and the aristocrats in the Roman Empire who were becoming Christians, and they needed a little bit of wriggle room. And St. Augustine provided it. He said, look, if you're rich, but you make donations to the poor, the poor will waft you into heaven. So it's okay to be rich. So he made it all right for uh, you know, everybody in the Roman Empire to become Christian. But there was another problem. Blessed are the peacemakers, turn the other cheek. Well, look, the Roman Empire was a mighty military empire, and it was fighting wars all over the place, all along. It's thousands of miles of boundaries. No turning the other cheek possible there. Oh, no problem, St. Augustine, because uh, if you read the scriptures very carefully, you will see there's a story in there about a centurion, that is a, a Roman officer in the Roman army, who came to see Jesus because his son was ill and wanted Jesus to cure his son. And uh, Jesus said, okay, I'll come with you to your house. And the centurion said, oh, no, no, don't, you don't need to, because, you know, I'm an officer, and so I know that all you have to do is give the order and it will be obeyed. And Jesus said, oh, your faith has made your son well, etc. So Augustine said, see, he spoke to a soldier, but he didn't tell him to stop fighting wars. So it's okay to be a soldier, therefore it's okay to fight wars. So Augustine provided the the kind of of, uh, wriggle room needed for Christianity to be accepted in the Roman Empire. And this was picked up later on by Aquinas, talking about uh, the the, um, justification for going to war. Now Aquinas, and following Augustine, said, in order for a war to be just, it must be uh, authorized by the, the proper authority, the king or the emperor. It must be um, such that you uh, can be sure to win it. <laughs> now, that doesn't seem a particularly moral reason, but it's a very prudential one because everybody knew the story of King Croesus of Lydia, who you remember, decided he wanted to attack the Persian Empire, sent a, a messenger to Delphi to ask what would happen if he did so. The Delphic oracle said, if you attack the Persians, you will destroy a great empire. Oh, good, thought he went off, attacked the Persians, and his own empire was destroyed. So he didn't get that message quite right. But, the, but the, the, as you know, the oracle always uh, hedged its bets. So that's a prudential reason. And there must be a just cause for war, said Aquinas. Well, that's not very helpful, because that's what we want to know. We want to know the just cause. No point in saying, when is a war just? Well, when you've got a just cause. Well, tell us what the cause is, but he doesn't. He just says you need one. So there was a tradition that started from Augustine through Aquinas right the way up to Hugo Grotius in the 17th century about just war. Well, I think if you look at what the Security Council of the United Nations published in 2004 on when it would accept that uh, the use of armed force as a last resort, was justified in cases of disputes between nations, uh, you will see a much, much more sensible view about the conditions when um, there would be no option but but war, very much as a last resort. And, of course, the idea is a, um, a really important one because if you think about what happens within a nation which goes to war, you think about the patriotism, about the brotherhood, about the coming together of people, how they share hardships, how they put their effort into uh, into winning the war together, the sense of solidarity and cooperation. Well, of course, if one could achieve that solidarity and cooperation in normal, peaceful circumstances without a war causing it, how much better! The world would be and all our nations would be. Think of the great problems in the world like uh, the threat to the climate or poverty in the world that could be solved if people really came together with the same kind of war spirit, not needing to create an enemy and a situation of danger in order to feel that kind of uh, cohesion in a society. And that really was some of the idea that lay behind the uh, United Nations, saying Um, you have to have really, really good reasons to having to resort to armed force to solve a problem because all these other things that we could do if only we worked together would be so much better a way of solving those problems. But the really big contribution that has been made in the half century and more since the Second World War, of course, has been development of the humanitarian laws of war. This is about the treatment of uh, people in war. In the just war theory tradition of Augustine and Aquinas, it does say the use of force must be proportional. That is, it mustn't be excessive. Uh, it doesn't have to be more than is necessary to achieve victory. And it, but it says very, very little indeed about the treatment of uh, enemy soldiers or enemy wounded or civilian populations. And here we notice that almost, almost coterminous with the phenomenon of war itself There has been thinking about this matter. In the book, I mention that uh, during the Warring States period in China, two and a half thousand years ago, an anecdote is told about the Duke of Song, who was going to war against the Duke of Chou. And uh, the the army of of the Duke of Song was all ready, but the army of the Duke of Chou wasn't. And so the Minister of War, of the Duke of Song, said, Let's go and attack them now, they're not ready. And the Duke of Cho said, no, absolutely not. No gentleman would dream of attacking his enemy when they aren't ready to fight. Well, in the event, the same thing happened as with King Croesus. He got beaten by waiting for his enemy to be ready. And when he was asked afterwards why he didn't attack when he had the chance, he just said, well, you know, it would be unethical to do so. There's got to be some propriety observed even in the time of conflict. Even though I'm the last and unfortunate remnant of my house, still I would not be thought to have behaved in an ungentlemanly fashion, he said. If you read the Mahabharata, uh, you see in that wonderful central section of the Mahabharata, which is called the Bhagavad Gita, there's a long conversation between Arjuna and Krishna about war, about the great war just about to begin. There they discuss, firstly, Arjuna is full of grief at the idea that there has to be war at all, that people are going to die and be injured. But they discuss how they should behave. You should never strike an enemy in the back who is fleeing from you. You should never cut the sinews of an enemy's legs so that he can't walk or or move. You must treat humanely the the wounded and prisoners, and so on and so on. This is is thinking which is more than a 1,000 years older than the beginning of the just war tradition in St. Augustine. Look at Thucydides. Thucydides says uh, about his account of the Peloponnesian War, he says, I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because of the effect that war has on our moral sensibility. Only think, he says, in the third year of the war, the city of Mytilene in Lesbos broke its treaty obligations to Athens, and the Athenians had a great conversation in the Agora. They were really cross with Mytilene. They decided they would go and massacre the entire population and burn the city to the ground. But overnight, they repented themselves. And the next day, they decided not to do that. They said, why should the whole people suffer for the folly of its leaders? In the 12th year of the war, the island state of Milos, which was um, an ally of Sparta, uh, was uh, uh, attacked by the Athenians. And the Athenians said to them, surrender and join us, or be massacred and have your city burned to the ground. And the Melians said, no, we're not going to break our, our treaty obligations to Sparta, so the Athenian general said to the Melians, You know, the power, we're not, we're not going to discuss right and wrong with you here. The powerful do what they can, and the weak suffer what they must. And still, the Melians wouldn't agree. They were massacred, every last one of them, and their city was burned to the ground. And Thucydides said, Look, look at the difference between how the Athenians behaved at the beginning of the war and 12 years into the war. This was because their their morality had been so corroded, so, so leached away by the experience of long years of combat, and this is why we must try to avoid war if we can. So we see that right the way through the, these different civilizations, these different traditions of thinking in China, in India, in uh, the classical world, this thinking about um, how to behave in war, the idea of the uh, humanitarian constraints that they should be in war. Uh, is, is a live theme. There's only one civilization which never, ever thought or acted on the basis of any kind of humanitarian constraint, and these were the successive hordes of, uh, um, of uh, pastoralists, of nomads, from the Central Asian steppes, um, the Mongols, uh, the Huns uh, later on in the late Roman Empire, and very, very much earlier on uh, in the um, early history of uh, Mesopotamia and Egypt, 2,000, 3,000 years ago. One of the earliest records of a major uh, conflict is on a stone stele uh, found in Mesopotamia, which records a battle between Umar and Lagash. And it has on it some pictures. It shows serried ranks of soldiers with helmets and spears. This is 3,000 BC, so you know 5,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, uh, uh, obviously already well beyond the military horizon, marching to war. There's a picture of the king uh, in his ox cart being dragged along to war, and there's a whole inscription about the fact that um, the king was victorious and the vultures ate the bodies of his enemies. And it was regarded as sufficiently important for this record to be kept of a great historical event. So you can see right, right from that very, very early period, coterminous almost with the fact of war is the keeping of historical records about war, and very soon afterwards, as we see from what I've just been saying, people thinking about how uh, to behave in war. Except when these great hordes came sweeping out of Central Asia, and they had no compunctions whatever about killing anybody in any way, and they had no sense of any kind of moral constraint in war. They used to, uh, when they sacked a city, they would kill absolutely everybody from the smallest newborn baby right the way up to, to, well, everybody, and they would stack their heads into great pyramids. So there were these huge pyramids of skulls as a warning to anybody who ever thought of um, uh, defying them or confronting them. Uh, And uh, there are some horrific stories told about uh, how they behaved. But they are more or less alone in the history of recorded war, uh, although they taught their their opponents a a lot of very difficult lessons. For example, they were the inventors of the chariot. Now, I said to you that the king was taken to that battle between Umar and Lagash in an ox cart. An ox cart with solid wooden wheels could travel at about two miles an hour, more slowly than a human being can walk. The chariot can dash into battle at about 20 miles an hour, very, very light, um, pulled by horses. Horses can't pull big heavy carts unless they are bred to do so, like the big dray horses that the brewers used to have here. Um, but the, the ordinary horse, especially the small horse of the steppes, wouldn't be able to do that. But they could pull a very light chariot. And once the horses had been mastered, first by the bit and, the, and reins, you can, you can steer an ox or a, or a donkey with a noseband, but you need a bit for a horse. And, they could be, uh, and you could make these very, very light um, curricles. Then you had a weapon of war, which was extraordinary. In fact, the the one great lesson of the history of war is that technology always gives an edge, always. The chariot is a great example. The composite bow, you know, the bow and arrow made out of a single piece of wood, the so-called self-bow, is rather weak. But the composite bow, made of several different kinds of wood with bone and sinew, could store a huge amount of enemy. needed a very, very strong person to be able to pull it. But when you did pull it and fire the arrow, the arrow went with an enormous amount of force, a great distance so you could keep away from your enemy and it could do devastating uh, things because of the strength of it. A bit like those side adverts, you know. So the the, the chariot and, and archery and the development of uh, two-edged swords, I mean, all these technologies kept on transforming war But, of course, if you were attacked by an enemy with those technologies, you pretty soon develop them yourself and be able to fight back. And this this has gone on right to to our own day and is another reason for fearing the technological development of weapon systems because the search for the the edge in war will always go on and on. Now, I can feel myself running away with this theme because I could talk for hours and hours and they haven't organized breakfast for tomorrow morning, so I think i better stop here. And uh, there may be some things in what I've been saying and other aspects of the history... Uh, and um, ethics and uh, technology of war that you 'd like to ask about, and i'll see if I can answer it. so thank you very much indeed. Thank you
0: I think we do have a time for a quick few questions, so if you put your hands up and i 'll work my way around i 'll start on this side. Thank you very much. that was
1: really interesting. Um, just a quick question on um, on preemptive strikes, what, are, what is your view on the ethics of that? And if it's, a, if it's allowed, what are the sort of boundaries, do you think? Yeah, very good question, that. Um, it's arguably the case that a, a war of self defense is justified if you're attacked by somebody else and they want to overrun you and you know, dispose of all your institutions and values. And a war in which you go to the rescue of a weak party being bullied by a strong party, that might be justified as well. So then the question about preemptive war comes in. Your enemy or somebody who's hostile to you is getting stronger and stronger. Do you wait until they're so strong that they can overwhelm you? Or do you attack them to stop them from getting too strong? Is a preemptive attack, in fact, a form of self-defense? Because if self-defense is justified, then so is preemption. And then it becomes a bit difficult and blurry. Because if you look at the First World War and ask yourself, how did that start? Well, probably a major part of the reason was that everybody was trying to preempt everybody else. You know, because there had been this tremendous build-up of uh, of armies and navies uh, in the decades of peace before the First World War. You may remember that one of the precipitating factors was that the Royal Navy, the British Navy which had been of course the world policeman all the way through the 19th century, had developed itself into what was called the two-power standard. That means that it was big enough and powerful enough To defeat not just the next most powerful navy in the world but the next two most powerful navies in the world combined that's how big and strong the royal navy was and how many ships it had and germany was keen to try to compete and they were building a big navy and so the british were thinking hmm they're like that you know etc And also, of course, the Germans were building the Berlin to Baghdad Railway and then the extension of it down to Medina. That was getting a bit too close to the Indian Empire. Because remember, the Indian Empire stretched, the British Indian Empire stretched from Burma to Aden. And it included Basra in the south part of what we now think of as Iraq. So the Germans were getting too close to the Indian Empire. That was another reason for wanting to preempt so maybe the first world war had a lot of preemption involved in it too and it was an absolute disaster as you can see so it's difficult to to, to say but there might be cases where preemption is genuinely an act of self-defense and sometimes where it's just an excuse Um, in modern warfare does the uh, bombing of innocent civilians alter or impact the course of war um well Uh, The the great philosophical answer coming up, yes and no. Um, No in the sense that conventional bombing doesn't. But if you go all the way to uh, atom bomb attack, yes, it does. And the Second World War proves this. Because the uh, Royal Air Force and the United States Army Air Force, all the way through the Second World War, in the European theater anyway, dropped thousands of millions of tons of of, uh, high explosives and incendiary bombs on Germany. And it didn't by itself defeat Germany. It did the same uh, in the Pacific Theater until August of 1945. And it was the dropping of the atom bombs that eventually clinched the matter. So bombing as a, as a weapon is a, rather ineffective. It's a horrible, destructive technique, but it's very ineffective unless it is pretty total. Rotterdam. Rotterdam and Warsaw would be another example. Yes, attacks by Stukas and so on. Not because of the death and destruction but because of the psychology of it. In the First World War, uh, uh, big Zeppelin bombers and Gotha bombers came over and bombed rather inaccurately and so on, uh, England in 1917, 1916, 1917, 1918, and there were about 1,500 deaths. One of the very worst bombing attacks was on Folkestone. And so it it had no effect uh, on Britain militarily or industrially, but it had a terrible psychological effect. Because it was just enough to frighten everybody. People didn't. It didn't go on for long enough for them to realize that it, that it wouldn't in the end. Like the Blitz, for example, didn't really go on long enough to break the spirit of the people or to interdict the war effort. But so a, a little bit went a long way, and then too much showed that it wasn't going to work. So it was the psychology of Rotterdam and the psychology of Warsaw in the very early phases of the war that had this psychological impact, like Guernica, for example.
0: When you uh, decided you'd better cut yourself short to give us time for questions. Um, The the, the third of the three tranches you Mm. mentioned in the the introduction was the bit that you didn't really get to in the future of war. Mm. Well, I did, with drones and uh, In in a sense, I was assuming that your future of war, given your initial thesis, might have something to do with the fact that you can see a future where we don't have war. And if that is something which you do see as a possibility, I'm just interested in your take on the different approach to it. One, clearly is the mode of social and political and human organisation. It's a human construct and we can organise ourselves differently. Mm. There's also um, the, the straightforward pacifist position of, of, of simply an individual personal rejection and, and, and of warfare, not just rejection but renunciation and, and a repudiation of warfare and trying to spread on that human level, mm. which is a, complementary to the organisation level but different. And then there's also the whole approach of some of us who are pacifist atheists would see a very rational approach to, uh, as as a way as, as well. I'm just interested in, in where in your own take to, on, on the future of war or the, or the possible future of not having war, how you see these different approaches towards getting rid of war, how they interrelate and, and,
1: and what future you see for which of them being the best. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I see that, that uh, if we survive our present that the future is one that we can be optimistic about. That war, as a means of uh, resolving disputes, um, uh, overcoming conflicts, and so on, will become potentially so destructive that it's not cost-effective. So, on purely pragmatic grounds, people would say much much better to jaw jaw than war war. That would be, you know, the um, sort of force majeure kind of argument. But I do see a role for. Uh, atheist pacifists uh, as well because as secularism um, spreads in the world and, and a kind of rational approach to matters and the recognition that there are very few differences really between people that aren't inculcated by tradition or ideology or religion um that the kinds of motivations one would have for using war as a means of resolving differences will continually weaken. So as education spreads as uh, you know some more rational attitudes spread uh, there will be more of a following wind for the pragmatic angle, although it's most likely the pragmatic angle that will really um, carry the day. So if we can survive this rather dangerous period we're in at the moment with terrorism and, and um, uh, you know, a kind of sense of emergency um, in the Middle East and in the Far East and, and what have you, very often drummed up for propaganda purposes rather than anything else, if we can survive all that, then maybe we do have a chance. I think one of the most hopeful signs is this. We'll talk about the bombing. In 1949, the, Con- the Geneva Conventions on um, Behaviour in War were adopted, and a clause was going to be introduced into the fourth Geneva Convention, which outlawed indiscriminate attacks on civilian populations. And both the UK and the United States refused to have that clause included because it would have meant an immediate retrospective admission of a war crime in the bombing campaigns of the Second World War. In 1977, two protocols were added to the Fourth Convention, the first of which does outlaw bombing attacks on civilians. The UK signed it. To this day, the United States of America hasn't. So the, the, the mere fact that um, the international community thinks and talks and aspires to have laws of war and laws governing behavior in war and constraints on war and barriers to war and uh, uh, international instruments like the United Nations and Security Council to try and prevent war, even though none of this works uh, so far, is nevertheless better than not having the aspiration at all, because you never know the aspiration might one day uh, come to, to into focus. Not least because um, uh, activism on hu- the humanitarian constraint in war has, has now brought uh, out something which for centuries and centuries and centuries was simply ignored, and that is the really terrible atrocities committed against women in times of war. Um, If you read Anthony Beaver's book about the Soviet advance on Berlin at the end of the Second World War, and the literally scores hundreds of thousands of rapes that were committed against women, terrible atrocities, and of course this is going on today, this very week in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where that uh, uh, conflict is going on today, and the use of rape as a weapon uh, in war to demoralize the the enemy. In the Balkans, for example, um, it was used in the conflict between the Serbs and uh, Croats and Bosnians. And it's a double jeopardy for women. I mean, but it, it sometimes happens that if women survive these uh, awful atrocities and are made pregnant by one of their rapists, they're then excluded by their community because they're carrying a baby of a rapist and, and can't terminate the pregnancy because there's no medical help and what have you. So, I mean, it's an absolute you know, double, treble jeopardy for them. And th- 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 this... This kind of treatment and the treatment of wounded and of prisoners, um, the atrocities committed, now come fully out as a result of the fact that uh, humanitarian organizations won't shut up about these things and will continue to um, be activists about them. And, And that is promising, I mean, even in the midst of the horror, because it means that there is more and more of an impetus to try to stop war and to stop this kind of thing happening. I'm going to end on one final thing. I just want to make a point about the cover of this book. You will notice that uh, it has a spear here and a missile here. And this picks up rather cleverly by the designer of the cover, a comment by Theodor Adorno, the uh, German philosopher, who said, we humans have grown cleverer over time, but not wiser. We've grown cleverer because we've turned the spear into the guided missile, but not wiser because we're still fighting wars.
0: And on that note, thank you very much.